Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, we explore America's love for traveling by car with an entertaining tribute to the kitsch and creativity of roadside architecture, those diners, gas stations, and motels we love. Connecticut Explored's Mary Donahue talks with nationally renowned architectural historian and photographer Richard Longstreth, New Haven diner owner Anna Mialakas, and preservationist Mark McEarn recounts saving Torrington Ski's diner. Buckle up and let's head out on the open road. This historic preservation story is supported in part by Connecticut Humanities. Hi, this is Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored Magazine. I recently served as a guest curator of Road Trip, a special exhibition celebrating the 50th anniversary of the National Historic Preservation Act at the New Haven Museum. The National Historic Preservation Act, which is federal legislation, was a culmination of growing awareness and concern over the destruction of historic sites caused by building interstates and the clearance of urban renewal. Americans' love of the open road blossomed in the 1920s as more families were able to purchase automobiles. Whether it's a ride in the country or a cross-country trip, the freedom to choose a route, stop where you please, and bring home a cherished memento brings a sense of excitement. This adventurous spirit and enterprising entrepreneurs created the modern tourism industry, making that journey just as important and memorable as the destination. Let's dive into the old-time thrill of the two-lane highway with its unique and sometimes really quirky roadside businesses and enjoy the stories and souvenirs shared by New Haven families. The exhibit spotlights vivid photographs of roadside architecture taken by nationally recognized architectural historian Richard Longstreth in the 1970s, including iconic diners, gas stations, motels, and roadside attractions that were constructed to serve the motoring public. Longstreth traveled over 60,000 miles across almost every state in the Union from 1970 to 1979. With the interstate highway system in its final stages of construction, it was a race against time to document the mom-and-pop businesses that had started to pop up in the 19-teens. Let's hear from Dr. Longstreth, Professor of American Studies and Director of the Graduate Program in Historic Preservation at George Washington University. What drew you to stop along the road and take pictures of this type of roadside architecture? Uh, It was simply something that arose as an interest in 69, 70 or so, and, you know, continued for some some years. It was very clear that uh, these buildings, ephemeral by their very nature, were also in for a shorter lifespan, if you will, by virtue of the introduction of the interstate highway system and the uh, reduced traffic on many of the older uh, state and and, uh, national highways. There was something of a, uh, you know, see it now or forever hold your peace. Clearly people love diners. Those are a landmark in any community. Well, there are two different strains here. One is the, the homegrown, where it's uh, 
simply a farmer or somebody else, you know somebody who has a, a main you know source of income looking for additional uh, stuff and build some cabins or a, a, a food stand or something like that and you know it's strictly folk sort of uh, undertaking on the other hand you have and diners from a very early uh, date are are uh, you know manufactured uh, and companies specialize in that and they can you know, obviously customize the design, but still it's variations on the theme. And by the 1930s, major major oil companies are doing the same thing, at least with service stations and, and with graphics and colors and so forth, branding the, uh, the building. And uh, Texaco was the first to do this on a nationwide basis, but after World War II, that was very common. So you have a you have a, a an interesting sort of a a mixture between between highly highly individualistic work done by amateurs and highly standardized work done by technicians intended for multiple uh, use in mm-hmm. in many parts of a region or even the country. That's such a good point, and we used images that in the exhibit that convey both of those two different methods. Freed from the constraints of rail travel, Americans took to the road in their cars even before a network of hard surface roads really existed. Popular two-lane highways included the Lincoln Highway, built in 1913, the first transcontinental road for cars from New York City to San Francisco, and Route 66, built in 1926, the Mother Road from Chicago to Los Angeles. In Connecticut, Route 1, which was marked with road signs in 1926, runs along the coastline as part of the road from Maine to Florida. The Mare Parkway, completed in 1940, uh, runs from the New York border to Milford, Connecticut. Then it links up with the Wilbercross Parkway, the Berlin Turnpike, the Hartford Bypass, Charter Oak Bridge, and then the Wilbercross Highway to take the traveler from New York City to Boston seamlessly. Route 10 was known as the College Highway a route that connected Yale University to the colleges in Northampton, Massachusetts, before Interstate 91 was constructed. The increasing popularity of automobiles in the 1910s led to the development of gas stations. First served by gas pumps at the side of the curb fed by above-ground barrels, motorists were soon pulling into stations with pumps constructed to pull fuel from underground storage tanks. Oil companies sought hundreds of locations to sell their product. By 1920, there were approximately 15,000 gasoline stations in the United States. Shell Oil Company was one of the first to brand itself, a modern concept, we thought, using the same graphics, color schemes, pump equipment, and uniforms for all of its stations. Fuel companies driven in part by roadside architecture critics who thought gas stations were tacky, and by the desire to stand out to the motorist, made their gas station designs more and more ornate, resembling such structures as an English cottage or a Spanish-tiled villa. After World War II, a more modern look using sleek enameled panels and smooth surfaces became standard. Gas stations before the 1970s provided full service, in which an attendant would not only pump gas, but also clean windshields and check the oil. Two iconic Connecticut-made products are featured in the exhibit, 
and they instantly evoke memories of car trips. One is a Vita Root gasoline pump gauge. This clever gadget has three dials. One tells how much gasoline it costs per gallon. Another tells how many gallons have been pumped. And the third shows the total price of the sale. In the 1930s, it revolutionized the way gasoline pump sales were made. Instead of consulting a price chart, the station attendant could instantly read the final total of the gas sale and the customer could rest assured that they had not been cheated. Another Connecticut product that most people of a certain age will remember is the dashboard cigarette lighter, standard equipment on almost all American-made automobiles. Parents instructed their children never to put their fingers in the socket. It was red hot and it would burn a kid's finger. But of course, I know some kids that tried it. The major producer of these lighters was the Connecticut Automotive Specialty Company known as Casco, founded in Bridgeport in 1921. In 1958, Casco manufactured an automobile lighter that, when uh, pressed into the dashboard socket, heated the coil hot enough to light a cigarette. During the 1960s, almost 40% of American adults smoked, and the Casco lighter remained in the dashboard till the 1990s. In preparation for the exhibit, We reached out to the Greater New Haven community for their road trip stories and souvenirs. We interviewed road trippers from 16 to 91 years old and received over 100 prize souvenirs for the show. From a trip to West Haven Savin Rock Amusement Park to a cross-country trek, Ray Anderson, Dave Corrigan, and Robert Kinney all share their memories. My father was a traveling salesman for many years uh, in eastern Canada, northeastern part of the United States. So he loved to get behind the wheel and drive, as I do still. And we also had a station wagon, a wonderful old Ford Galaxy that uh, schlepped us around. We also had a Buick uh, Skylark wagon at one time. So it wasn't uncommon for us to go to Cape Cod, to Cooperstown, New York, to the Baseball Hall of Fame, to Lake George, to uh, go up to uh, Santa's Village uh, in Vermont, to see Old Man in the the mountain in New Hampshire, go to York, Maine, and uh, rent a cottage and get in that icy cold waters. Uh, So we traveled through much of the Northeast, and, and we like to take the blue highways, the back roads especially, not just the main interstates. Uh, we didn't have to get there on deadline. Very often we go from New Haven to Hammonasset for a day in the summer, and we would make an annual pilgrimage from New Haven to Hartford to do our Christmas shopping at G Fox Call. I mean, we you know we get in the car and drive up Route Five to Vermont or out you know to the to the Cape. I can't remember you know a lot of stops along the way, but. We do have some photographs, obviously, either coming or going from Vermont. You know, we stopped at at least once in Santa Land in Putney, Vermont. I've got a photograph of my sister and I in front of, you know, the, the, the white painted North Pole right in the center of the, the Santa Land. One of the things that we like to do is put enough gas in the car, just enough to get us to New Jersey. And therefore, because the gas prices are cheaper in New Jersey, so... Roughly around about the first or second um, rest stop on the Jersey Turnpike, that's when we'll gas up for the duration of the ride. Most motorists could expect to find a comfortable bed and a hot meal almost anywhere along the road, but not all travelers received the same hospitality. Mar Barger of the Jewish Historical Society of Greater New Haven remembers going to the Woodmont section of Milford, known as Bagel Beach, 
because it was an area where Jews could rent cottages. Sago Beach was one of the nicknames for, because it was mostly Jewish people who went there. It had, one, it had several restaurants. The one that was very well known was called Sloppy Joe's. And I just said, my day, you know, I went there, of course, as a, as a teenager. And uh, you, you were there, you go swimming all day, you get, you rent a locker, you change, and at night you have supper at Sloppy Joe's, and you hang around, and even 11, 12 o'clock you went back in for a Coke or something, you know. The place, I don't know when it ever closed. Jewish New Haveners also vacationed at upstate New York in the Catskills in Jewish-owned resorts. Throughout the era of Jim Crow and racial segregation until the late 1960s, African-American travelers were never assured that they would be served at restaurants or allowed to rent rooms at motels or even be able to purchase gasoline. In 1936, Victor H. Green, an African-American mailman in New York City, published the Negro Motorist Green Book, a guide to businesses in New York City that would serve black customers. A year later, he expanded his travel guide to include businesses across the nation. On the cover was the motto, Carry your green book with you. You may need it. Green counted on the word of mouth to compile listings and asked his readers to send him information about businesses that welcomed black customers. He listed a wide array of business types, including hotels, tourist homes, which were private homes willing to rent rooms to travelers, nightclubs, restaurants, service stations, and beauty parlors. Not restricted to places in the South, the guide covered most states and larger cities. By 1940, the Green Book included seven cities in Connecticut. New Haven's listings included hotels, tourist homes, restaurants, beauty parlors, and a beauty school. Most of these were located in the Dixwell neighborhood, including the Monterey Club at 265 Dixwell Avenue, where the buildings still exist. Founded by successful African-American vaudeville performer Rufus Edward Greenlee, the Monterey Club was a prominent jazz club, hosting superstars such as Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, and John Coltrane. The Green Book made it easier for these international stars to find what they needed during a stop in New Haven. A national project, Mapping the Green Book, is intended to document all the remaining buildings once included in the Green Book, which was published from 1936 to 1966. After World War I, car travelers often packed their own camping gear. Auto camping became the rage. Municipally owned camps gave way to privately owned camps and ultimately to facilities offering small cabins. The Motor Hotel, or the Motor Court, was born simultaneously with auto camps in the 1920s. The term motel can be traced to 1925, but the development of an adjoining series of rooms rented as individual units blossomed after World War II. Clean, respectable, and brimming with amenities, motels were often mom-and-pop family businesses. Motel architecture ranged from the historical period look of the colonial revival to a futuristic atomic-age motel modern vibe. Neon signs touted color television, swimming pools, playgrounds, and air conditioners. Motel owners often operated a nearby diner or a gas station. In 1953, the Hartford Current, using national statistics reported in the Wall Street Journal, reported that there were 45,000 motels nationwide 
and 3,000 new motels opening that year. Connecticut's own Berlin Turnpike was nicknamed Gasoline Alley in the post-war period. The 11-mile strip had at least 20 traffic lights and was lined with over 200 businesses. It was considered one of the great neon sign capitals of the Northeast. It still serves as almost an encyclopedia of motel development. Food and road trips have always gone together. Automobile travelers may have packed picnic lunches for short trips, but also depended on roadside restaurants or diners. Convenience and the American enthusiasm for eating out contributed to the growth of the restaurant industry. From 1920 to 1927, the number of restaurants of all kinds grew a whopping 40%. Food stands began popping up at convenience stopping points along busy roads. These roadside businesses were perfect for the independent small businessman. New England is home to seasonal food stops, too. Clam shacks, lobster pounds, hot dog stands, and ice cream stands. Let's hear about some rogue food from Robert Kenny, James O'Sullivan, and Ray Anderson. There are two places that we usually stop. One in the D.C. area, there's this place that's called, well, I guess 20 years ago it was a bus where these guys would basically cook out of the back of a bus. And, and they would, um, this was along Indian Highway View area of um, Maryland, but we would stop there. And then if we're going further south, uh, Florida, because my wife's family is from Georgia, um, there's a spot in Jacksonville that's well-known called Jenkins Barbecue. Mm-hmm. And that's a place where we always have to go uh, when we're in that area to get food. And even when we're coming back, and they have sell these huge jugs of barbecue sauce that we'll load up, you know, barbecue sauce and all that stuff to come back home. On our way down, we would see uh, the Tabletop Pie Company on the Berlin Turnpike. And it was uh, probably just a little offshoot store or something, uh, maybe a, an outlet store. But we were thrilled. We, As kids, we would all be able to pick out our own Tabletop Pies. They're little individual ones, about this big. And we would pick them out and uh, we'd take them with us down to our vacation. We actually would try to dine at some of the... Um, the chains. I loved Howard Johnson uh, growing up, and I think it was the ice cream that really drew me in. But some of those other uh, types of foods, uh, beef stroganoff, I guess it was called beef burgundy or whatever they had on the menu, or some type of fried fish sandwich uh, would be a big deal. And the onion rings, nothing that I think a self-respecting adult should probably eat these days, but it was fun back then. You could handle the calories. Uh, also, I think we went to in in New England to uh, farm shops where we can to get an Abigail sandwich uh, uh, or a fisherman jig or a big beef or a watermelon sherbet cooler. Anna Michalikas, the owner of New Haven landmark diner Clark's Restaurant, shares her family's diner story. In the 60s, maybe even before the 60s, I'm not sure exactly the date, uh, my husband and his brother acquired a place uh, next door to the pizza, which was a dairy from the Clark family. The Clark dairy came from the West Haven. It was a dairy farm. And it started as an ice cream parlor. And they had, you know, requests for more than ice cream, and that's how it became very famous, with a little bit more adding food and and the hard work and dedication to those guys. Yes, they've been, we've been here with the same uh, food and, um, and ice cream business 
since then. What's your average day like? Like when do you when do you start working? I start in the morning, which is about maybe nine or nine thirty. I mean, they open earlier, but I come in a little bit later. Um, and I just do the breakfast and the lunch with the girls, and continue on until the afternoon to dinner. Constantly working. I love being with people. I love making people, you know, happy with with my service and the food, and, and it's just wonderful. I they became my friends as as long as I became, you know, their friends too. And it's just love working with people, I guess. Now, what about sort of the old-fashioned diner-type foods? Do you serve a lot of hamburgers, cheeseburgers, oh, french yes, fries? Oh, yes, we do that, too, of course. Of course, lunch hour, yes, of course. Lunch hour and sometimes even dinner. We do have. We do have uh, burgers. We have hot dogs. We have platters, you know, all that. Yes, we do. What kind of customers do you have? Is it mostly students? Oh, right here, uh, we have people from um, the area, working people. Uh, office people, we have students, we have professors, we have Yale people. You know, it's, this is Yale, it, it's the heart of Yale, so you can imagine that we have a lot of uh, famous people coming by and have some pictures on the wall, as you can tell, you can see that from years and years. Um, you know, and uh, just people that are in the area. I think it's families on the weekends, a lot of families with kids. I believe the Clintons were here. Um, when they were going to Yale, and we have some pictures of that of, uh, of that wall of them. Uh, they actually the day was the only place in New Haven at those years, and I this time they used to walk down here for the milkshake. The Streamline Diner has become a pop culture icon, from its origins in the lunch wagon to the diners that look like train cars to sleek models with rounded stainless steel shells, diners became family-friendly stops along the road. Often featuring homemade food, these locally owned restaurants began to face fierce competition in the 1960s and 70s from national fast food franchises such as McDonald's and Howard Johnson's. Connecticut's roadside architecture is at risk of demolition due to the upturn in the economy and renewed development. Very few vintage gas stations exist and few of the state's mid-century modern motels have been rehabilitated to serve today's travelers. Few of Connecticut's roadside buildings have been listed on the National Register of Historic Places. But the Torrington Historic Preservation Trust is working hard to save Ski's Diner, one of the oldest streamlined diners in the state. Let's hear more from Mark McCarran, president of the Trust. Mark, could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in saving Ski's Diner? Well, I've been interested in skis for decades. I think ever since I, you know, returned to Torrington to uh, take a job here at the Torrington Historical Society, because it was in such a prominent location on North Main Street, corner of uh, Routes uh, 800 and Route 4 in Torrington. And, you know, uh, it's hard to go anywhere in Torrington without driving by uh, Ski's Diner. At least it was hard to go anywhere in Torrington without driving by Ski's Diner. Uh, so it was just always there and just such an iconic part of the roadside architecture here in Torrington. Everybody from Torrington was certainly aware of it and travelers too, um, also noted it in their trips through Torrington. So we hear, you know, people from, you know, all over, um, talking about their memories of skis. It's pretty fascinating, really. Well, I know skis is a really early diner. It may be as early as about 1920. And it was built by the O'Mahony Company, 
but could you describe a little bit about its life in Torrington and, the, and its architecture? It's uh, architecturally, it's a typical uh, barrel roof diner from the 1920s. We don't know its exact date of construction. However, recently we we found a number on it, number 562, but we don't know if there's a um, a key that will relate that to a year of construction or not. But it's uh, 30 feet long and 11 feet wide, so it's a very narrow diner, and it's from the early period before the diners had booths. So there's um, there's a counter that runs the entire length of the diner and stools in front of the counter for the patrons, and then behind the counter, of course, were the food prep areas, and the original icebox is still uh, inside the diner. It's uh, made of mahogany, and uh, it was uh, electrified at some point. A compressor was put in the basement, and cooling coils uh, were were added to uh, to chill it. But that's a, a real iconic uh, part of the interior of the diner. Uh, it skis is remarkably well preserved for a diner of that age. It has all the original windows in it. Uh, some of the glass has been replaced with restoration glass. Uh, the glass in the windows has a design in it. It's done by the glue chip process. So it looks kind of like frosted glass, but there's the, the frosting on the glass is in a, uh, a beautiful curvilinear design. And uh, some of those were broken at some point in the past, but one of the owners in the 1980s uh, made the effort to uh, hire a restorer to remake glass in the exact same pattern to reinstall into the diner. Uh, it's got the original tiles on the inside, a green and cream color tiles on the floor and on the walls of the diner. And there's uh, interesting enameling inside the diner, too. It, it looks, uh, well, actually it looks like Formica, but it's actually an enameled, enameled surface uh, behind the counter where the food prep uh, took place to, so it'd be easy to clean. Uh, it's, but it's remarkably well preserved considering its age and the, the fact that it was sitting out in the elements for all of its life. The diner first came to my attention in 2002 when it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It then became endangered. Could you tell us a little bit about why it was endangered? Well, as far back as 1986, there were uh, rumblings about uh, skis being purchased by somebody from out of town or even out of state, and that the diner would be moved somewhere and uh, reinstalled and um, used for used for either a diner or for a different purpose. So that was something that surfaced regularly. And then uh, as recently as uh, 2009, the diner was acquired by the Northwest Connecticut Chamber of Commerce with uh, the intention of turning it into a visitor center and placing it near uh, Route 8 in Torrington. And plans for that never materialized. And then the the, uh, the chamber was approached by uh, somebody from Rhode Island who wanted to move the diner to Rhode Island and use it there. And at that point, uh, the Preservation Trust stepped in and started negotiating with the Chamber of Commerce. And in the end, uh, the chamber uh, took a write-off and donated the diner to the Preservation Trust. However, there was a kind of a, s a steep stipulation that went with it, and that's that um, it sat on a leased piece of property. And the owner of the property wanted the diner moved. So it was going to be moved one way or the other. The question was, was it going to be moved and remain in Torrington, or was it going to be moved away from its hometown? 
and uh, the Preservation Trust was able to find uh, a warehouse. And we, so far, we've moved the diner to the warehouse, and we've initiated the restoration process. And we've also begun looking for a permanent home for the diner. We'd like to see it somewhere in the downtown area, uh, you know, relatively close to where it used to be in Torrington. And uh, can, and we want it to be uh, a roadside attraction serving food, as it always did. Can you tell me a little bit about what is going to go into the restoration, and how hard was it to move? Actually, it was remarkably easy to move uh, because they were designed to be moved, as you know. You know, they were built on site. Uh, the Jerry O'Mahony diners were built in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and they were uh, loaded onto barges or, or train cars or uh, hauled by, by truck and trailer uh, to their uh, homes. And the Skis Diner came to Torrington, we think, from southern Connecticut, possibly the old Saybrook area, although no one's been able to confirm exactly where Skis originated its life in Connecticut. But it came to Torrington in 1945 and uh, opened for business early in 1946. And at that point, it was named Skis Diner after Edmund and Tony Sasowski, the two brothers who ran it. And Skis was uh, Tony Sasowski's nickname when he was in the Navy in World War II. He was known as Ski, so uh, it was a natural to have it be Ski's Diner. So, t- um, so our process in moving it was to separate it from its brick foundation. We jacked up, we didn't actually jack it up, we put the diner on cribbing. Uh, the metal framework of the diner, and uh, then we knocked out the brick foundation, and we inserted uh, steel beams underneath the diner, and we had a volunteer a crane operator who brought his crane and a flatbed truck, and it was lifted off its foundation and placed on the flatbed truck and hauled to its uh, current location, which is in as I said, it's in a warehouse where it's being restored. And what kinds of things have to be restored? Well, you know, when it was sitting on its site, you know, to the casual observer, it looked like it was in pretty good condition. But, you know, when you start taking things apart and doing a closer assessment, you find lots of lots of issues that need to be addressed. We started with the, founda- with the um, foundation, in this case, by the foundation, I mean the uh, steel uh, trusses that support the diner. And so far, we've uh, scraped them down, primed them, repainted them, so they're in good condition. We have to do a little welding on some of them. The ones underneath the icebox uh, were damaged from years of water dripping on them from the icebox. So we have a little um, welding to do on part of the steel trusses. The... Um, Outside metal panels on the diner uh, were not the original ones, so we we have removed those and uh, exposed the uh, wooden sheathing underneath. And when we did that, of course, we found more problems. Uh, some of the fr- the wooden framing elements uh, underneath the metal sheathing had rotted, so those uh, are going to be repaired as needed. Uh, and then we're going to buy new metal panels. I have them fabricated to match the uh, dimensions of the original ones and then put those back. Of course, um, roofing is always a key issue and uh, the roof on the diner was leaking and so now that the diner's inside, we're able to strip the roof off the diner and we have to, again, do some repairs to the uh, barrel roof, the the wooden planks that um, line the barrel roof and uh, we'll we'll be repairing those and then uh, we've got to find a new roofing system to uh, 
come. So there's a lot of issues. The windows, oh, the windows are another thing. Even though they're original, they all all exhibit some uh, rotting wood at the um, at the bottom edge of the window. So we're in the process of one by one restoring all of the windows in the diner, uh, just replacing just as the smallest amount of wood that we can to make them sound again, because we don't want to uh, we don't want to have replacement windows in the diner. We want to use the original windows, but we can we're able to replace the bottom a portion of the bottom rail and make make the windows sound and we're really excited about that that part of the project. Help us save the roadside. These places matter to me. They're important landmarks in our community and they really matter to you. For information on how you can get involved, please visit the website of the Connecticut Trust for Historic Preservation. I hope you have a chance to visit the exhibition Road Trip at the New Haven Museum up until the middle of June 2017 and really enjoy this fun, rich trove of souvenirs and photos and roadside mementos. And remember, each issue of Connecticut Explored Magazine gives you the heads up on places to go and things to see. Maybe I'll see you soon having a hot dog at Blackie's in Cheshire or a cheeseburger at Harry's in Colchester. Hit the road and take your road trip. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank the New Haven Museum, Dr. Richard Longstreth, author of Road Trip, Roadside America, From Custard's Last Stand to the Wigwam Restaurant, Anna Mialakos, owner of Clark's Pizza in New Haven, Mark McKern, president of the Torrington Preservation Trust and Connecticut Humanities, Mary Donahue, Pat O'Sullivan, and Elizabeth Norman produce this episode. Connecticut Explored comes to you live in February. Join us for the lecture series, Connecticut's in the American West, offered in collaboration with the President's College of the University of Hartford. Hear fascinating talks about the Connecticut National Guard on the Mexican front, teaching on the frontier, and Sam Colt's mining venture in the Arizona Territory. Find more information on the events tab at ctexplore.org. Thanks for listening. For more great stories about Connecticut history, subscribe to Connecticut Explored and receive the current issue with stories about Connecticut's in the American West and purchase back issues at ctexplored.org.